Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Okay, this is our seventh session in our series on, on fasting. The Lord burdened our hearts towards the beginning of January to begin the series on fasting and, and prayer. And I'm, I'm so glad we did because it has really strengthened and deepened my own personal prayer life. And I'm sure it has done the same for you. Isn't prayer vastly different now? Amen. And there's a sense of raw confidence that we have in our posture to pray when we pray to our Father. Um, and couple that with fasting, our understanding and practice of fasting is being increased, enhanced, and is gaining momentum. There are certain spiritual disciplines, like Bible study, the reading of your Bible, personal devotion, certain things like the meditation on God's Word, which is an activity of the mind, the mind of your spirit, over the mind of your soul. Things like prayer, things like fasting, perhaps things like giving, financial offerings. I call them disciplines. Everyone say discipline. So they, they bring order and regulation to one's life. In this particular domain that we are discussing now, issues of prayer and fasting, it is said that for the vast majority of the global church, this discipline is seriously lacking in the house of the Lord. And God's purposes forever lie suspended because nobody is praying. Remember I told you His will is only done on the earth when someone positions themselves in prayer to activate, get hold of that will and pray through in the prayer through in the earth. Otherwise a lot of God's intentions lay in abeyance. And I have committed, my whole posture in prayer now is changed. Whenever I pray now, it's one of responsibility. The person that is responsible is a, accountable. If I give you a, a task or an area of stewardship or management, usually you are held accountable or you are held to be responsible over that domain. Such too is the one who prays. When you pray now, yes, you enjoy your father. There's this vital flow of conversation there's this running conversation between you and Him. There's this active, living relationship that you have as a son of God with a loving Heavenly Father. All of that is true, and all of that is to be enjoyed within the realm of prayer. But added to that, when you come to, before your Father in prayer, you come as one bearing serious responsibility for the matter at hand. The, the, the thing over which you pray, you assume an accountability from God in the heavens. Because to you it has been revealed as to what to pray for. You access the will of God in the heavens and you pray it through. Not so? So when you pray, you don't pray shallowly, casually, with, with, with the sense of uh, almost carte blanche. You're blasé. You're not focused. 
you come and you're totally concentrated. It's amazing to me how that so many people, the moment they decide, I'm going to pray, you, it'll be, you'll be amazed at how your mind will wander. Not so. Suddenly you remember if you're a woman, you'll be thinking, what, are we gonna, what am I going to cook for supper tonight? Uh, uh, if you're a working man, you'll be thinking maybe of work-related issues or of the kids, of stuff that you need to do. Uh, yesterday morning, this morning in fact, I was walking, it was about 3 a.m. this morning, I was walking around my pool and praying. And you know what had happened to me? I was walking around the pool and I saw one of the flower beds. I'm thinking, these weeds, this bed needs weeding. And I actually started, every time I came around, I'll pull one or two out and I'll carry on. And then I realized, hey, you're not, you're not focusing. There's something that's distracting your attention. I want to encourage you, when you pray, your whole mind, body, soul, and spirit must be concentrated on the task. Do not allow the enemy to distract you. Not emotionally with anxiety. You might be overly concerned about a matter. Not physically with things around you, either in your, 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 your private world. Not even things spiritual. Focus on your father and consult with him it's you and daddy it's you and papa it's you and your heavenly father when you pray not so elijah put his head between his knees and he prayed that it would rain not so bible says he prayed with fervent prayer Um, ezra you'll see just now and the group prayed with earnest prayer total involvement in this particular session, we're going to have a look at Ezra's fasting. Now, just some background. Um, it's in the center of your page there. Let's just read the, the text. Ezra 8.21 says the following. You all have a copy of the notes. Are there any spare copies lying around? Okay. If you're sitting next to someone that uh, doesn't have, you might just share. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. Everyone say Ahava. At the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. Ezra too was in Babylonian captivity. And just some background, I told you last week that you need to study the book of Nehemiah and Ezra together. Together with the prophetic writings of Haggai and Zechariah. Those four books need to be studied together. When Israel came out of Babylonian captivity, after 70 years, remember? They were released by a decree by the Persian king Cyrus. He ordered a decree that he will allow the Jews, he released them, and he gave them the option to go back to Jerusalem. Now, in your notes, you, you have the date there, right? Um, as prophesied by Isaiah, this is under the background passage, prophesied by Isaiah, this is in Isaiah 42 and verse 28, the Persian king Cyrus sent exiles led by Zerubbabel, back to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. So this Persian king rises up. This is after Persia. Let me give you some background. 
It's good to know some of the history. Babylon and Persia were two separate empires. Babylon was a predominant empire for many years, ruling vast lands, tracts of land globally. In 539 BC, the year before this release, the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonian Empire. So the Persian king started to rule. And this king Cyrus, God calls him in Isaiah 48, he's my servant. God calls a heathen king, my servant. I tell your neighbor, relax, don't worry. Heathen kings can be God's servants. <laughs> tell your neighbor, God is sovereign. And sometimes he messes with our theology. Okay. A heathen king is called God's servant. God said, I will raise him up and he will pass a decree and send my people back to their homeland. Right? So this happens in, in 539, um, uh, 538 sorry, BC. And so the movement of Israel, all the men of Judah, back to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity, which now is overtaken by the Persians, happens in three installments. They don't all come back in block. There were three waves of people. One, two, three that will come back. The first group was led by Zerubbabel. Right? The second group was led by Ezra. The third group was led by Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were contemporaries. So Zerubbabel is a type of an apostolic figure. Obviously, Haggai and Zechariah are prophets. So you have this apostolic and prophet dimension working too, together. They started the rebuilding of the temple, but because of opposition, it was, the, the building process was, was, was halted. And you can see in the middle of the paragraph, the temple was rebuilt by, 15, by 515 B.C. Years after this, the temple's rebuilt. Ezra is still in so-called Babylon, ruled by the Persians. In the year 458 BC, it's in your notes, Ezra leads the second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. Right? Now this is where we pick up the narrative. He receives, like Nehemiah would after him, he receives great favor from the king. He is given vast resources. You must read the account in the book of Ezra. It delineates exactly what the king gave him for all the temple service to resume in the house of the Lord. Both from utensils to items for the sacrifice, he's well stacked to come back. But before he comes back, do you recall, Nehemiah after him, we will come back with the third installment. What did Nehemiah ask the king for safe passage from Babylon to Jerusalem? Letters. Give me letters to all the governors beyond the river, Euphrates. So when I pass, they will give me safe passage. But Ezra had a problem because he boasted to the king, don't worry about that, my God will take care of me. Right? So he did not want to ask for any troops, and he was offered this. Do you want a god? Do you want my entourage? Do you want my personal god to accompany you to safe passage back? He said, no, my god will take care of me. 
Now he realizes, hey, I've made a statement. And you know what he does? He gathers the nation to pray. He gathers all those that will come with him back. And if you read the account, he actually delineates all their names and how many would come from each sort of sector. Heads, clan, heads of clans and heads of households that would accompany him. And he comes and he gathers for three days at the river Ahava. They camp there for three days before he finally decides to make the, the journey. And we read the scripture. I proclaimed a fast there by the river Ahava. That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for what? What is the focus of this fast? To seek him for a safe journey back. For us, for our little ones, and for all our possessions. Because they're going back well stacked. And he's concerned because he knows the territory from between Babylon to Jerusalem was fraught with difficulty. In fact, the journey would take them four months to get back. Right? would take them four months. In fact, when you read the book of Ezra, he says, and the Lord protected us from several ambushments. God's protection was upon this group of people. Now, what is this fast all about? Let me alert you to this. There's more than meets the eye here. This is simply not a fast only for protection on a long and dangerous journey. Yes, the literal application of this is so. He appeals to God to protect them on a long journey. I think it's perfectly in order to fast and pray for God's protection. I think it's perfectly fine. We have a scriptural basis for it. A journey of any nature, but particularly a journey that has got weighted spiritual purpose attendant with it. Right? Ministry-related stuff. And I think it's wise for a local church, whenever they send out ministers on missions, like apostolic missions. Uh, we, we're going to Canada in, in July, in August, and to Washington. Right? And when that time comes, I will call upon the church to fast and pray for us. You know what? As great as the Apostle Paul was, do you know such a great man frequently made requests to churches to pray for him? Right? Um, in this season, at, please, I really want to encourage you. This I'm talking as applicable to a church sending out apostolic missions or missionaries or sent ones to do the Lord's bidding in nations. It's not glamorous. We don't go as tours, tourists, right? Um, there are times when you go and minister out, you feel the weightedness of the warfare. Right? Sean's a witness. And it's, it's, um, you have to endure much at times to confront through teaching to depose ruling principalities and, and powers. And would you agree within your own heart, church, that whenever, be it myself or anybody else from this congregation, goes out to minister, that every single one of us would partner with them in prayer. Yes? And fasting. You know why their success is your success? What if something negative happens to them? We all suffer. We all feel the hurt. So the success of anyone privately and personally benefits the whole group. But you too also in your private ministry, 
never ever seek to operate alone. Always have strong prayer backing, people fasting and praying for you. And your singular going will be backed by corporate prayer power. So you might be alone there, but you are not alone in the battle. Amen? So tell your neighbor, I'll back you up, bro, or sister. I'll back you up. Hallelujah. I make it my duty, if I hear Thamos anywhere, Dr. Segi or somebody, um, to pray for them. It's just it's become part of my, my DNA now. But there's more than meets the eye, like I've said. This is simply not a fast to pray for physical protection. What was at stake here? For me, that's why I headed this at the top. Ezra fasted for physical protection and preservation of the scribal grace and anointing within him. Everyone say scribe. What was Ezra? Ezra was a, a scribe. And so this fast, listen carefully, Zerubbabel would have led and have completed the rebuilding process. Remember in Zechariah, when through opposition, the building process stopped, stopped for a number of years. I think it was 10 or 15 years that it stopped for. Zechariah and Haggai will come and prophesy to the builders to reactivate the building process and not to be discouraged by opposition that come up against him. Right? Do you remember in Zechariah 4? What did Zechariah say to Zerubbabel? He prophesies to opposition in terms of a mountain. It was Zechariah who said, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he, Zerubbabel, he who started it, it's, who laid its foundation, will finish it by bringing the top stone or the, the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Amen? Let's remind your neighbor, you will finish. You will finish. Your name again, my dears? Sumaya, you will finish. You won't be finished. You will finish. Amen? I want to encourage you. Some of us feel that we've started a, a process and we've, you've aborted something that you should have completed. It's time to pick up where you've dropped the exit and complete the task. We are not called to be incomplete in our endeavors for God. I've got new zeal and new energy. Especially now that my wife's healed. <laughs> I, I can run the comrades marathon if needs be. Um, I've got new zeal for the work of God. I'm sleeping less. Not that I'm working, toiling in labor, but the sweat of my brow. No, it's all in grace. It's all in grace. But there's a new urgency and fervor that I have for the kingdom things. Amen? And so, the temple was... Building was activated and completed. Nehemiah comes now because he's a scribe. And you know what the scribe, let me just tell you about the scribe. The scribe is not someone who writes. Get some myths out of your head. We, we, we often think of a scribal grace. We think of someone that writes or we think of a secretarial uh, administrative function. Right? It's part of it, but it's got nothing to do with the essence of it. When it says Nehemiah was a scribe, the Bible consistently describes him as a master 
in the law of Moses. Take the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. This guy, Ezra, he knew it backwards and forwards. He not only knew its content, he knew its application. The Bible says he was well-versed in the law of Moses. Now listen carefully. Was Ezra's going back to Jerusalem necessary? Very necessary. If you read the book. You know the one thing, he, he, when he comes there, um, he sees the disobedience of the people. Particularly, he sees how they've intermarried with foreign nations in direct violation of a clear commandment of God. And God uses him also when Nehemiah would return later. If you read the book of Nehemiah chapter 8 and the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, when all of Israel stood before the water gate, remember? Who stood up? Nehemiah called Ezra, the scribe, to stand up on a raised platform in front of a podium. And the Bible says, and he stood up with 13 other scribes. Let me just say this. Whenever the Bible references Nehemiah the scribe, he is simply the face of a corporate company. In the season, the one-man band is over. God is using a corporate entity. Remember Elijah thought he was the only one in Israel? When he was suicidal? He says, I'm the only one. What did God say? I have 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee. But Elijah became the face of a move. He was like the forefront of things. But there was a whole company. I want to encourage you. Never ever think that you are alone in an endeavor that God is using you in. There's probably countless others with the same burden that you are carrying. Hmm? With the same burden that you are carrying. And so, and remember in Nehemiah 8, what would, ne what would Ezra do? The Bible says he opened the law and he read for a quarter of the day. A quarter is what? 25%. What's a quarter of a day? A day is 24 hours. So a quarter of 24 is 6. This Ezra read for 6 hours the law of Moses before the whole nation standing, not sitting. And they stood to attention in awe as he read the Bible says and he gave explanation. Is, Nehemiah, or is Ezra a powerful man? Most certainly is. Do you know what his name means? His name means help or assistance. He was the embodiment of help. He was the embodiment of assistance. He came to the nation to help them get back to the ways of God. And he did it through a revelation of the word of God. He was a scribe well studied. So the way I see this fast is this. It's not simply about, Lord, take us safely there. God is transporting not just people. God is transporting a grace dimension that the city needs urgently. Amen? Everyone say scribe. So when we say Ezra was a scribe, don't think of someone who is scribing. Think of someone who is a fundi, a master in the scriptures. In his context, the only scriptures he had was the Torah, the first five books. We've got 39 now to master. We've got much more work than he had. But we have grace and the Spirit.
to give enlightenment. Amen? And I want to encourage you, he was a master, a master scribe. If you look in Ezra 7 verse 10 on the next page. You know, while in Babylon, let me give you the background quickly before you read. If you read Ezra chapter 7, because we're going to read verse 10 now. But if you read the context from verses 1 to 9, it gives a detailed description of the month and the date that Ezra would leave Babylon and the time of his arrival in Jerusalem. And he leaves after fasting at the river Hava with, with the nation. And they are successful. The Lord protects them. And they arrive. That's verse 1 to verse 9. Then suddenly verse 10 comes out out of the blue and it says, For Ezra set his heart to do what? To study the law of the Lord. To do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Everyone say four. And I noted here, in the Hebrew the word four is because. Or this was so because. Or this resulted on account of. So when you read Ezra chapter 7 from verse 1 to 10, you've got to read it like this. So verse 1 to 9 tells you, he left Babylon, takes four months, and he arrives in Jerusalem because Ezra set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. Can you get the message? I'll be getting the message already. Why did God use him to go to Jerusalem to teach and to activate Israel back to the ways of God? Why? Because while still in Babylon, he, he, he set his heart to do what? To study the law, to do it, and to teach it. Ask your neighbor, what are you setting your heart to do now? Let me just say this. First, firstly, just generally, how many of you want to do the will of God for your life? Come, let me see your hands. You know, Ezra did not wait for the call of God from the heavens. Ezra, my son, I have this work for you from Babylon to leave and take you for four months to my people in Jerusalem. Didn't come like that. This man was doing his own stories, minding his own business. All he knew is the right thing to study the law, to become well-versed in it. Then God saw that. And God sets up a process simply by virtue of his diligence. You see, some of us want to be used, but we are making no preparation. You can't wait for the call to start preparing. God calls you because of the preparation. I hope you are activated to study. And let me just say this. I believe everybody should study the word. Not so? But you might have an area of, 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 of function that's unique to you. Whatever it might be. For example, Renee wants to be involved with counseling. And the care for abused kids. Right? She now has a desire to do a counseling course to UNISA. What is she doing? She's preparing for the call. Amen? I want to encourage you to do all you can to prepare for your destiny. 
Because right? the time will come when you're going to have to work and be activated and you won't have time for that. That would have had to be done by then. This verse is very important. Everyone say because. Say for. Say as a result of. And verse 1 to 9 says all of those things. Says, all of that resulted because some man in his own private closet somewhere decided to study the scriptures and become a master in the first five books. Hmm? That's why I study daily. I study always. Because who knows what things my private preparation is preparing a context for God to use me in the future. Amen? So don't stop studying. Tell your neighbor, don't stop studying. But in the center of your page there, I got this as a order, an order for all ministers of God's word. And this order, what did he do? What was his order? Number one, he studied. Number two, he obeyed. Number three, he, he taught. Everyone say, study, obey, teach. Come on, say it again. Study, obey, teach. Tell your neighbor, look at him now, say, study, obey, teach. Rita, study, obey, teach. Hallelujah. You still have many more years ahead of you. Nico, study, obey, teach. Amen? Study, obey, teach. In that order, let me just say this. You can't teach that which you haven't studied. You can't teach that which you've studied but not obeyed. Your obedience of that which you studied is your authorization to teach. It's not simply your authorization, it's your obligation. You have a responsibility then to teach that which you have personally obeyed in your life of the things that you have studied. Amen? That's a serious time, brethren. It's a serious time for engagement in the word of the Lord. Don't neglect your Bible. Don't neglect the reading and the study of God's word. Who knows what God is preparing you for in time to come. And this man, you see, this fast, he says, okay, I've done all of this. You see, what if Nehemiah was killed in that four months journey back? What if? It's not just a man that has died. It's a man whom God has prepared for a long period of time with a scribal grace, who, which, which Jerusalem needed. It would have aborted much of God's purposes. You know, the moment he gets there, and, and, and you read this, the Bible says when he sees the condition of the people, like Nehemiah, you must read his prayer. It's a very long prayer. In very similar fashion like Nehemiah, he comes before the Lord, reminding the Lord. He says, we violated your commandments. And, and we've married foreign women. The whole nation, he says. And, and he, the Bible says, he, he sat, he, was, he said, I was, I like the NASB, he says, when I saw it, I was appalled, he says. I was, I was embarrassed to see the state of the nation. And the Bible says he starts to mourn. And you know what he says? He says, I humble myself. And while it doesn't say he fasted, but when I read I humble myself, fasting is assumed. And the Bible says other leaders saw him and they gathered to him and joined him. And they joined him. And he leaves the, the nation back in this national repentance. Um, and reconnection back to the ways of God. All of that was preserved because he chose to stop 
I'm going on a long journey. Tell your neighbor, you two are in migration. Don't think of this as a physical journey. I'm talking about a spiritual principle where you're on a path of movement in the realms of the spirit. And for all, you know, it's, 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 I've often said this to you. Moses was prepared for 40 years in Pharaoh's courts. Another 40 years in the wilderness under Jethro, his father-in-law. How many years is that? 80. But after 80 years, he comes to deliver Israel. And the Bible says, and the Lord met him to kill him. Why would God kill a man after spending 80 years preparing the man? Remember, he failed to circumcise his sons. His, his wife intervened, and she circumcised him and saved his life. I often think, what if Moses would have died? We have 80 years lost. God would have to raise up somebody else. Tell your neighbor, you can't afford to die now. Even physically, amen? And you're not going to die now. Hey, Sean, we can't die now. I'm going to live till 130 at least. I said to the Lord, 130. Who was it? Job lived to 130, not so? Jehoiada. Job lived to 120. Jehoiada, uh, that took care of Josiah in the Old Testament, he lived to 130. Tell you, neighbor, 130 is the goal. <laughs> I want to live a long time because I want all the preparation vested in me to be of use and benefit to the body of Christ in the time that I'm alive on the earth. Tell your neighbor, help. Are you like Ezra? His name means help. Will you come side along the purposes of the Lord and, and fuel it and build it like he did? But he was a scribe. Now, let me encourage you. You know, um, there are many verses here that relate to us fine-honing our skill in the word of the Lord. Right at the bottom of your page, Psalm 45, verse 1, the third part of this verse is, My tongue, the C part says, My tongue is like the pen of a ready what? Right, so when we think of scribe, we think of someone that writes, but not necessarily so. A scribe was well versed in the law and is able to teach it to people. Not so? The word ready in the Hebrew is mahir, which means skilled, well versed but also very, very quick and prompt. He's not just a master, but he's quick to respond to the need by virtue of his thorough preparedness. Right? Now, on the next page, you will see in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6, in the King James Version, it says, Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a ready scribe. Tell your neighbor, how ready are you? He was a ready scribe, right? Are you an ever-ready battery? I hope you're at least yourself. <laughs> the Message Bible says, He arrived from Babylon, a scholar well-practiced. I like that. The English Standard Version says, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was ascribed skilled in the law of Moses. Now look at the following verses that tell us that we should always be well-versed in the Scriptures. How well do you know your Bible? How well do you know present truth relative to the apostolic? Some of the doctrines that the apostles and prophets are releasing now. Do we, how well do we understand them and are we living them? Because this scribe studies, then he does. 
then he teaches. There's a lot of revelation being released presently. And for many sectors of the church, it's simply verbiage. We can recount it. Some of us can speak it better than most. But for a great section of the church, is not becoming life. It's not becoming the word made flesh and dwelling among us. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself. Let us obey everything we've heard. Right? Let us obey everything we've heard and let this word become flesh. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready. Tell your neighbor, be ready. Be ready to make a defense to everyone that asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. Colossians 4.6, let your speech always, not sometimes, without to say, always your conversation, your speech always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, that you will know how you should respond to each person. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and in instruction. Luke 12, 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Keep your sharpness in the word. Be ever ready to give account or to minister grace to the hearers in your context. Tell your neighbor, the scribal grace is upon you. Now at the bottom of that page, let me explain it quickly. In Matthew 23 and 34, Jesus said this to Pharisees and the scribes of his day. Remember in Jesus' day, there were Pharisees and scribes. And there were scribes that should have been masters in the law, but they misinterpreted the law and put unnecessary burdens upon the, the people. Right? Um, and he also prophesied to the city of Jerusalem in this context that refused to receive the covering of his wings. And he says, what is his response? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you what? Everyone say one, two, three. So what is the one, two, three? I'm going to send you in what order? I'm going to send you prophets, then wise men and scribes. So to a deficient church, to a church in need of restoration, and reformation. What does God send? God sends prophets, wise men, and scribes. Now, wise men is a reference to apostles. Because Paul said, like a wise master builder, by the grace given to me, I laid the foundation of the Corinthian church. The apostles got a wise master building dynamic. Prophets more than prophesy. Prophets have a thorough handle on the ancient will and wisdom of God locked up in God before even time began. And a prophet doesn't just prophesy. A prophet is a custodian of the law of God, a custodian of the ancient mind of God, that which is locked up in the heart of God before the worlds were laid. When a prophet comes to a context or a local church, let's say he walks in here, he's very apt and quick to discern error. Right? Not to expose it uh, for embarrassment's sake, but the whole dynamic of the prophet is he wants to heal that which is wrongly built. So he will declare it when it deviates from the norm. Like other fivefold ministries, they are given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the, the work of the ministry. 
Prophets often make declarations. Everyone say prophets declare. Prophets declare. So yeah, how it's work. A prophet comes in or in scripture, they would pick up frequencies from the heavens and they would declare the will and the intent of God. The wise men, the wise master builder, the, the apostles, take what the prophets have declared and they, they give structure to it. Apostles by nature are build, it's a building anointing. Right? That's why Zerubbabel is an apostolic type. That's why Nehemiah built the wall is an apostolic type. Right? Zechariah and Haggai are prophets. So listen carefully. How do apostles build? Apostles build by establishing doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is what you believe. What you believe will affect how you behave. So an apostle, and I've seen this powerfully demonstrated a lot with uh, Sean, Sean Bluchnaut and uh, Thamo. Very often, Sean would make statements, declarations about an embassy or frequency being released from the throne. Then at the next school, Thamo is doing umpteen sessions on building that, that theme or that frequency by doctrine, labeling it, building structure and design into the mentality of people's belief system so that they, they have a strong edifice of belief when they walk out. Okay? When they walk out. Sean would often, for example, release the firstborn emphasis. Apostle Tamonaidu took it and built doctrine around it. What does the scribe do? Because what are sent? Prophets, then? Wise men? But then the scribe comes in. Listen carefully. The scribe's focus is to take what was apostolically built based on prophetic illumination. The scribe will take it and teach it to the people. His whole mindset is to inscribe it upon the mind and the hearts of the people into their lives. So on a very practical level, there's understanding at grassroots level so that people on the ground can live out the doctrine. I always say this. Tell your neighbor, you know the word, we get the word inscribe from the word scribe. Right? When a scribe comes before you and teaches apostolic doctrine that was prophetically released, his intention is to scar your mind with understanding so that the template is established firmly in you. So when you walk out, the principle is almost automatic. You walk. Zerubbabel had been there. Haggai had been there. Zechariah had been there. But the scribe comes and he sees. And now listen carefully. The scribe in Nehemiah 8 stands up with the other 13. And he teaches the law of the Lord. Right? His whole mindset is to inscribe the law in the heart and the mind. Look at this verse in Jeremiah. It says, look at the next page. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. Okay, we shall be done in the next 10 minutes. It says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Some of your verse say inscribe it. I'll put my law on their heart and I will inscribe it. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then it says, the next verse, if we had read further, it says, no one will have to teach them anymore because they will all be known as they are known by me. 
Right? It's not just necessarily the gift of the teacher. First Corinthians 12, 28 says, He established first in the church prophets, sorry, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. The task of the scribe is not necessarily, it's a teaching dynamic, but not necessarily by a teacher. It could be by any of the five former. I've seen Thamo operate as a scribe. I've seen Sean himself operate scribally. Right? It's a grace that any of the officers can, can, can function in. Amen? Now that is where it is. Now let me ask you this. Bring it down to where you are. Although that's a bit of background, doctrinally. How well is doctrine inscribed on your heart and mind? You know you engrave stuff, like on, on ornamental stuff, watches and chains, etc. How well is the Word of God ingrained so that when you're out there, even if you wanted to deviate from the path, you cannot because you're so scarred with the principle. You cannot disobey because the principle is such a resident principle within you. You see, the scribe wanted to take, the law was external to the people. But God says in this verse, no more will it be on tablets of stone. It's going to be written where? In the heart. It will be like a GPS governing the, the course of your life, um, guiding your, your movements, etc. That is, now listen carefully. This fast is about preserving that dynamic in the nation of Israel. Because hmm? if this had to die with Israel, this dynamic would have been lost. So I'm calling you not only to embody the scribal grace. I really feel at the core of my being, this corporate house is called to be a scribe in the spirit. If you want the frequency and flavor of our, of our corporate reality, I think we are scribal in the spirit. I think that's our calling. I honestly am um, convinced, I'm, I'm convinced about that. Let's look at the actual fast, just quickly. Tell your neighbor we're going to fly now. Hmm? Hallelujah. You enjoying this? Is this making sense? Hmm? I know it's a bit abstract tonight, but just follow me. The, the, the river, look at the actual fast. Maybe they're at a river, and the river's name is Ahava. At the bottom of the page there, I got the meaning of Ahava. Its meaning is... Many. It's, it means brotherhood, I shall subsist. It also means essence, and it also means generation. Now, there are three sort of general nuances of the meaning of Ahava. It's no coincidence that he's at this river, and the meaning of the river has got some truth that we need to apply to a fast which has as its focus the restoration of a scribal grace to the church in the end time. So there are three general meanings. Brotherhood, I shall subsist, and generation. Let's look at the first one, brotherhood. Everyone say brotherhood. Brotherhood. Do you know, and they were fasting corporately. In a corporate fast, you must ensure that there's no relational tension. There's no division. There's no issues. There's no bitterness. There's no unforgiveness. Relationally, we must be brothers. The principle of love and care must persist. Right? Um, 
even Isaiah 58, which is the fasting chapter, it speaks about how relationships are violated when one group uh, basically um, takes advantage of another with a whole range of exploitive measures. And God says, because you're violating relationships, exploiting your brother, when you should not, in the day of your fast, God says, when you fast, I don't see it nor hear it. So for me, it's pointless praying when you've got bitterness against somebody. It's pointless going on a fast when relationally you're not fine with your brother. If there is offense, go see your brother and sort out the matter, then go back to your fasting. It's pointless for a husband and wife to embark on a family fast if there's tension in the relationship. Sort the matter out first and then come in the spirit of what? Everyone say brotherhood. Brotherhood. Tell your neighbor the safest neighborhood is the brotherhood. I could just camp here. He camped here for three days <laughs> at the river Harvard. It's three days. Brotherhood. Go to the next page quickly. First Peter 2.17 says, um, honor all people and love what? Love the? Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Let me just say this. Listen carefully. Um, I don't know where I have it in my notes. It's somewhere here. Yes, this is how the narrative plays itself out. They gather at the river. He realizes, as he looks at the group, he, he suddenly dawns on him, there are, there are no Levites here. Levitic, there are many priests, but no designated Levites. And what does he do? He sends out a group for a group to come. In fact, it's on page 4. I want to read this just quickly. On page 4, one, two, third paragraph where it says in Ezra 8 verse 15. It says this. I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava. We camped there for three days. I observed that the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Eleazar. And then I left out a few others. El Nathan, who are what? What is near my concern that there must be a strong dynamic in the group as they go back? A teaching grace, eh? A scribal grace. I sent them to Ido, the leading man. I told them what to say to Ido and his brothers and to bring what? Ministers to us for the house of our God according to the good hand of God upon us. And they brought us a man of insight. Can you see the the, the caliber of men that, that Ezra is leading? Strong scribes. 13 of these guys will stand with them in Nehemiah 8, and, and teach the word of the Lord. Right? It's time, brethren. God is raising up a strong scribal teaching anointing in this house. You must give an account. You must love the word more than ever before. Amen? So, I like this aspect of the brotherhood. It's not just, Ahava means brotherhood. And yes, there were, there were loving relationships, but there was also a covenantal joining of a specific grace dynamic in the group. Strong teaching grace. Amen? The, 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 the name also means, I shall subsist. Now the word subsist, just follow me, let me explain in my own words, has two general meanings. Subsistence is generally to basically eke out an existence. If you're subsisting, it means you are sir, surviving. Right? And that at a, at a minimum level, 
your basic needs are taken care of. But the word subsist also means to remain in force. In legal terms, if you say, for example, the rights of the tenant in occupation subsists. You're saying their rights are in force. So when Nehem, this river, when it says, I shall subsist, the word subsist means to remain strong, to remain, to prevail, to endure, to remain in force, not losing weight or authority, not losing any rights. You know what? He gathers at this river, knowing that as they journey, they're not going to lose anything. Nothing's going to be taken away from them. No authority, no representation, no grace, no substance, no stature will be eroded from them as they gather preparing for a fast at this point. Tell your neighbor, I shall subsist. Nothing shall be, I'm, I'm prophesying now, nothing shall be taken away from you. Nothing shall be eroded. You will, at the end of the journey, still remain in force. You will still be authorized, still legitimate. And even your God, whose good hand, like it was on him, it will be upon you, and your most basic needs will be more than adequately provided for. This river has all of these components in it. Tell your neighbor, aha, va. Don't say aha, aha, va. What does it mean? It means brotherhood. Secondly, it means I shall subsist. Thirdly, it means generation. And this is where I want to just close off. So I felt prophetically early this morning to pray. You see, he prayed for a safe passage, not just for themselves, but for... He references, he looks at all the kids at the river, he says, our little ones. You know the little ones there? Was the next generation. And a river whose name means generation. God's purposes are built generationally. He's the God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob. What he does in one generation is essential for the next one to build upon. So any specific generation must not lose the will of God in their time so as to disadvantage the generation coming after them. But rather, they must fulfill the will of God in their time so that the kids which follow after them are more than adequately resourced to take the will of God to the next level in their time. I've made this decision. I will not disadvantage Matthew. I will not disadvantage Liam. I will not disadvantage Luke. I will not disadvantage Ray, my four kids. By how I posture myself, I will do everything in my power that my ceiling will be their basement. They will leave enough to, to take, and I'm talking, yes, natural things, yes, Want to lead them in inheritance by God's grace. All of that is true. But yeah, I'm talking about a spiritual caliber, a disposition that I need to impart to them. Tell your neighbor the next generation. And he, and he realizes, we'll fast with our little ones. And there's this concern. You know that we are the 42nd generation. We shall declare his generation. We are the church. And I think it's perfectly in order to, to fast with this in mind, that God's purpose is vested either with your kids, thrive, and especially on a more spiritual level with this 42nd generation, which is the global church in the earth today, that nothing be lost for that, for that purpose. Amen? How many people love your kids? I'm sure we all do. There's no parent that doesn't love their kids. Something wrong with you. 
We love the kids. And I know that our kids have an awesome destiny in the, in the Lord. 